All right, well, would you turn to Mark 14, verse 72? I promised you last week that we're going to dedicate an entire message on that verse. I believe even one message is not sufficient. We should have a series of messages on that one verse. But it suffices for today and for the purpose of really wanting to finish the gospel of Mark. One message is, one message is enough. Mark 14, verse 72. And it reads, Immediately a, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. In the last passage, we looked at the denial of the ages. The sin that grieved our Lord Jesus and wounded Peter. When the closest disciple of Jesus went into nosedive, the leader of the pack, the most zealous, the one to be chosen to be an apostle, the most outspoken follower of Jesus Christ, Simon Peter, who publicly declared his unwavering devotion to Jesus Christ, saying, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. How was it that he came crashing down? How was it that he did the exact opposite and he denied our Lord not once, not twice, but three heart-wrenching times? More importantly though, How do we prevent ourselves from following Peter's footsteps? Well, that was last week's message. And for those who feel most susceptible, most vulnerable to fall the way Peter fell and you want to avoid it, I would encourage you to download last week's message and listen to it. What about those who don't really feel that vulnerable to fall? the way Peter fell. I would encourage him 10,000 times all the more to download that same message and listen to it. I urge them to listen to that message. Why? Because it is self-confidence is the very first step in that path of death. Self-confidence always leads to sleepy Christian living. And that sleepy Christian living breeds self-willed attitude. And that self-willed attitude, when it, when, when it, it's, it goes to its final state, it will take you to places you shouldn't go. And it will cause you to watch things, stuff that you're not meant to be watching. And at this point, sin is inevitable. But now, And for today, the question, the $10 million question for today that we want to address is what about those who already identified with Peter's fall one way or another? Those who already denied the Lord in deed or in word. 
or using the language of uh, James, those that their lustful desires already conceived, and he gave birth to sin, and sin already brought death. What should they do? What should you do if you already went down the spiral in these four steps of death and now your soul is bruised, your hands are stained with your own blood? How should we respond appropriately to sin, whether big or small? How? Because if this is you, you don't need prevention. You need a cure. An antidote. The rest of this narrative is for you. Because what took place immediately after Peter's denial is the cure for the deep wounded soul because of sin. That self-confidence inflicted. So again, the question is, How do we appropriately respond to sin in our lives? The outline for today's message is the look, the remembering, and finally the weeping. And if you carefully understand and open your hearts and your ears to those simple points, you'll have a good idea of what you ought to do when you, as a believer, sin. The first is the look. When sin wounds you and it cuts you, you feel like you're hit by a train and you're knocked around and you're left confused, the first step to be cured is the look of Jesus. The look of Jesus. Christ is our better dean. He's our band-aid. He's our medicine. One look of the Savior is our soothing cream to our wounded souls. So we start reading in verse 72, that one verse, the first sentence, and he says, immediately a rooster crowed a second time. Now, where is the look here? Well, it's not there. Would you turn to Luke, please? Would you turn to Luke 22, verse 60? Because Luke here adds wonderful, good, great nuggets that help us to understand what is going on. We come here to the third denial of Peter. If you recall, as he denied Jesus, he was cursing and swearing. And in Luke 22, verse 60, it says, But Peter said, Man! I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately. Now, pay attention to the following. While he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. So while Peter was denying our Lord for the third time, and the words are still in his lips, and they haven't all come out yet, loud crow of the rooster. It disrupted and interrupted Peter's denial. And Peter would have thought, well, what's going on here? I can't get the words out of my mouth. And Peter now, as he was interrupted, he takes a quick glance up. He's looking and and through a little window of a room 
in, in an upper floor where Jesus is tried full of Sanhedrin. He looks and then what shows up? Who shows up in through that window? Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So what we have here is as Peter was lying through his teeth, Jesus turned. Nobody turned Jesus. He did it on his own. And then looked at Peter. And Peter is looking. And what does he see about his Savior? The Master whom he just denied. Jesus' hands are still tied, as, as we read earlier in the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels. His face is swollen. It's full of blood. And Peter zooms into Jesus and he finds his face is disfigured. He notices black and blue discoloration around his eyes because of the beating. And all of a sudden, their eyes lock onto each other. The Lord looked at Peter. And this look of Christ penetrated into the heart of Peter. And this look communicated what thousands of sermons could not communicate to Peter. It burned deep into his soul and it awakened this sleepy Christian. And what we want to do in that first point is that we want to analyze what is in this look. That is backed up by scripture. What is in this look that had such a huge impact in Peter's life when he sinned? We'll look at three angles. There are so much more, of course. We'll look at three angles and we analyze this look and we find the first thing is that it was a look of a selfless love. How do we know this? Well, Peter was thinking, Jesus, you're, you're defenseless. There is no one with you in that room to support you. You're all bound, bruised, beaten up, and they threw a blanket over your, your head and they started punching you with their fists. And yet you thought of me. You turned around to, to look at me. Lord, if, if there is any time in your life to, to think of no one else, to care for no one else but your own pain and your own sorrow, it is now, Lord, yet your heart still goes out to me. Me, the unfaithful disciple. Me, while I am denying you. Well, everyone should have turned their back on Peter and never looked at him because of his sin. Yet our Lord turns to Peter and looks at him. What a selfless look of love. What a loving look that melts the hardest heart. Brothers, when you commit a sin and you want to appropriately respond, 
Yes, we know, of course, this sin grieves our Lord. That is for sure. No doubt about it. Nobody needs to tell you this. It is obvious that it grieves the Lord. But he does turn to you and he looks into your soul with a look of love. The second angle that we look at this look, it's a look of pity. It's a look of a tender mercy. It is a compassionate look of a, of a good shepherd upon his wounded sheep. And he's eager to, to lift it up into his arms. It's a, the sympathetic look of a, a good doctor into his wounded patient. Sick patient and his eager wants to bring healing into this patient. Let us be clear, it was not an angry look. Jesus only has holy anger towards these self-righteous false teachers, stubborn, unteachable teachers or followers, but his children. Especially those children that are battered with sin. His heart goes out with tender mercy. Let us not forget what the Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. He didn't come to condemn. He came to heal, to bring forgiveness and to bind wounds. But Jesus hated Peter's denial. That's for sure. But that's just as a loving father who hates it when thorns of rose dig into his child's foot. He pities this son of his. But in no way does any father abandon his son just because he stepped into some thorns. No, he feels his son's pain. He sympathizes with his child's condition. And so does Jesus feel toward Peter. He pities Peter. Brothers, this is why it says of Jesus that he is the good shepherd. That if he loses any of his sheep, he looks for it. And what does he do when he finds it? He's overjoyed. Jesus delights to find his lost sheep. He loves them all. And when one is wounded because of sin, his heart moves with compassion, so eager to heal, ready to soothe the pain and help that person to change. And this leads to the third angle, which is grace. Grace is given to us to change us. Amen. It's a gracious look. It must have been a gracious look. It says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 14, that Jesus is full of what? Grace and truth. Again, it says that of his fullness, we receive grace upon grace. And the idea is there are more grace and more grace and ever more grace available for us. And if Jesus is full of grace, then what kind of look would he have towards his son, his child, Peter, that wounded disciple? 
It is full of grace and truth. In fact, <clears throat> in John 1.42, which marks the very first time Jesus met Peter. Do you know how the Bible introduced how Jesus met Peter? When he first saved Peter by grace, of course. Do you know what it says? In John 1.42, it says, Jesus looked at Peter and said, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas. It was a look of grace that saved Peter. And it is the same look of grace that now penetrated deep in the, in the heart of Peter when he denied the Lord. Why? How come? Remind, uh, let me remind you, brothers and sisters, that in Romans 5.20, it says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And when Peter, and because Peter sinned greatly, so also the grace of our Lord was abundantly greater and more aggressive than this sin. When we say that Jesus is a gracious Savior, what do we mean by that? You know what we mean? We mean that he loves to heal wounds freely. That he drowns our sins in the sea of forgiveness without money and without price. That when Jesus looked at Peter the first time, the first time, you know what he saw? He saw his fallenness. He foreknew his failures, yet the Lord was gracious to save him freely. And not only that, but he chose him to be his closest companion, intimate friend, the leader of the apostles. Jesus is indeed a gracious savior. He knew Peter before conversion that he was guilty and vile, wretched sinner. Yet he loved him. And you know what? He also knew Peter after conversion, that he was going to be self-confident, empathetic, self-will. And yet still loved him the same. And so as Jesus looked at Peter graciously, it will be like he's saying to Peter, Peter, I still love you. No matter what you do, I love you still. And even if you deny me 10,000 times, I love you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.3. I love you to the end. John 13.1. In fact, take a look at my face, Peter. These bruises, the bleeding, the disfigured head, they're all evidence that I still love you because this is part of the price that I have to bear, that I have to pay to bear your sin. Hosea 11 verse 8 says this, God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? 
How can I surrender you, O Israel? Meaning, how can I let go of you? And what God said to Ephraim, Jesus said to Peter in that look. And he also says it to every child of his when he sins. Brothers, yes, we know we must know about God's justice and righteousness and may God give us strength to preach all the more of his wrath and judgment against sinners. Yes, of course. And we also know that there are wicked men who would abuse the grace of our Lord as a, and use it as a license to go deeper into sin. May God judge, may God judge them. But none of these things take away this power of Jesus' gracious look to his children when they sin. Why? Because it is his grace that compels him to pull us back to our safety. Romans 2 verse 4 says, The kindness of our God leads you to repentance. Our true repentance begins when we're exposed to this kind of look. So if you denied him, if you sinned, and you want to get out of this mess, what do you do? Well, let me give you some couple of misconceptions. Now, some Christians, they... When they sin, they, they think that Jesus has somehow limited amount of grace for them. And it's kind of running out. And it's like Jesus is saying, look, man, you sin a couple of more times. And I'm almost through with you. You do this one more time. And it's your last straw. You'll be kicked out of my kingdom. Others, others think that, you know, when they come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness, it's kind of like Jesus says, oh, well, you know, I guess I'm a savior and I guess I have to forgive you because that's what I have to do. Even though I just can't, I'm just over it now. I'm over it. I mean, how many times are you going to sin and come to me and ask for forgiveness? And it's kind of like Jesus is dragging his feet to come to you and kind of accept you. What a rubbish, twisted picture of, of Jesus that the devil tries to paint in our minds. Brothers, the first and foremost important step that we must take when we sin is that we must believe that Jesus loves to pity us. That he's overjoyed to heal us. It is his glory to pass over our sin. It is his delight to cover our transgressions. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does it joyfully. It is in his very nature to want to forgive us and to heal us. We are never, never, ever a burden 
upon Jesus. So what do we do? We bask in Christ's mercy. We swim in the ocean of His abundant grace for us. Drown yourself in that sea of His compassion for you. Or simply put, behold Christ looking at you. That's the first step. Jesus look. The second step. What do we do when we sin? Remembering. So we go back to Mark 14 verse 72 and we continue going through this verse and it says here again, let me read it from the beginning. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered, remembered. Now Peter was sleepy. We said that last week. He's a sleepy Christian, apathetic. And yet the loving look of the Savior awakened him. Peter was stoned. He wasn't just spiritually cold. He was spiritually frozen. And one look, one look of the Savior, he melted his heart away. The love of Christ was like a sword and it cut through his conscience. So Peter, what happened to Peter? He woke up from his slumber, right? His mind began to recalibrate. And I believe there were thousands of events between him and Jesus flashed into his eyes in that one moment as he gazed upon Christ. And he would have thought, well, who is this man that looked at me while I was cursing and swearing? Oh, it is, it is Jesus, my loving Savior. I remember three years ago, he came into my boat. He filled it with fish to the point that my boat almost sank. He, he came into my home. He touched my mother-in-law when she almost died. It is Jesus who appointed me to be among his 12 apostles. He handpicked me to be among the three closest companions. He chose me to be a witness, took me into Jerry's daughter's room. I saw it when Jesus raised her from the dead. He held my hand and took me up to that mount of transfiguration and I beheld his glory. It was just me and a couple of other more brothers. He whispered into my ears and he said to me, don't tell anyone. I was very special to him. Huh. Once I was, I was drowning. I cried out to Jesus, Jesus, save me. And Jesus came. He stretched out his hand. I touched his hand and he pulled me out of the water. Even just yesterday, he, he just washed my feet. Why am I denying him? What am I doing? 
He's only been good to me. I was hungry. He fed me. I was troubled the other day and he comforted me. Even when, when I needed to pay tax, he provided and he paid for me. How can I be so wicked and deny him now? What has he done but acts of kindness? What has he done to me but, but blessed me? In fact, even now it's still echoing in, in my head. How he said to me, blessed are you Simon Bar Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but it, was, it is my father who's in heaven. Blessed are you. He blessed me. And look, look at him now. Even now, he still loves me. Peter would have concluded, oh, my wickedness is great. The filthiness of my sin run deep. Peter remembered. But he wasn't, he didn't just remember general events. It tells us here he also remembered a very specific one. So the text says, Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. This was a prophetic warning. And Jesus, if you recall, he said to Peter, you will forsake me. No, I won't. Right? They will, not me. Oh, oh, yeah, you will. In fact, you're not just going to forsake me. You will deny me. No, 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 no. No, I won't. I'll, I'll die for you, but I'm not going to deny you. But now what happened? <laughs> Jesus, you're right. <laughs> you're never wrong. You're always right. And Peter recalled how he spoke to his master. That's for sure. No doubt about that. And he probably pondered and asked himself, why did I not listen to Jesus' warning? Why was I not teachable? Rather than wasting my time arguing with him, I should have cherished his words into my heart. I should have thrown myself at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you said it, it will happen. What do I do, Jesus? Please help me. I should have asked Jesus, Lord, why are you telling me this warning? What are you trying to teach me? What was it that Jesus was trying to teach Peter when he gave him this warning? If you recall, in the upper room, when Jesus spoke um, to the disciples, Peter was one of them. In fact, that is what led Jesus to, to say this warning to the disciples. It was basically simple. You read it for yourself. Don't trust your, your flesh, Peter. Trust me, Peter. Why? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And Peter remembered. And what did his remembering do? What did it lead Peter to do? It led him to weep, right? And that's the third point, the weeping. So let's recap so far. What is the appropriate 
What are the appropriate steps to respond to sin? First, the look. The look of Jesus. And the only way to get Jesus to know that Jesus is looking at you is for you to behold him. Just as much as Peter. The only way that Peter knew that Jesus was looking at him is that Peter himself was looking upon Jesus, right? That's all you could do. Look upon Christ. Know who he is. And see him looking at you. Second thing is to remember. Remember his goodness to you. Specifically to you. And the third, the weeping. The weeping. It says, and he began to weep. Now notice here it says began. He didn't just weep for a couple of minutes and it was over. No. It was an ongoing, unending period of contrition and remorse. Weep. He began to weep. This word, it's not just having teary eyes. It's such a strong word. It's translated to mean the word lament or to wail with loud voice. In fact, it is mentioned in the Bible as the crying mother over her dead sons. And to add more intensity to it, Luke tells us in verse 62 that he went out and wept bitterly. Mm. So Peter left his dark place of spiritual attack, probably found a corner somewhere, fell to the ground, and he started weeping and sobbing. And his weeping was so intense as though his children just died. That's the picture we have here went out and wept bitterly. No witnesses around to see Peter. Not in the open, right? Not in the public where eyes are watching for Peter to impress them. No. Peter now, his heart is broken, and in the darkness of the night, his eyes have become fountain of tears, his knees have lost strength, and he's now kneeling. Because that's all that he could do, right? And he's in deep anguish because of his sin. Deep anguish. Why? Why, why is it he's such in, in a deep anguish? You know, some people grieve in the wrong way. They grieve as self-atoning. Be careful of this, brothers and sisters. Some people grieve in the flesh as a means to atone for their sins. And it goes like this. They think, oh no, I sinned against God. God must be really angry at me now. M maybe I just have to feel bad. And if I maybe feel bad enough, if I squeeze my eyes hard enough, long enough and get this crocodile tears out, he's going to feel sorry for me and then he's going to be pleased with me. That's false repentance. It's not genuine. You can't guilt trip God to forgive you. But not so with Peter. He wasn't repenting to self-atone so God would be gracious to him. No, 
It is precisely because he knew that God was gracious to him in Christ that led him to repent. Repentance was not his Messiah. It is the result of beholding the loving Messiah. So why did he have deep anguish? It is not just because he sinned. No, it is because he recollects the loving, merciful Savior that he sinned against. And it threw him to the ground in a bitter remorse. So what do we have here now? Peter is convicted. And it's burning in his heart the fact that he sinned against his loving Lord. And in the language of the psalmist, he's cultivating a contrite heart, a broken spirit. What a beautiful thing to have this deep anguish like Peter did. Again, I just want to say, just want to clarify a little bit. You know, some people, they, they come to me and they say, I'm, I'm, I'm troubled because of my sin. I respond by saying, well, I'm I'm glad for you. It's good. And then they look at me and there's that long pause. And they're staring at me. And so, I guess I I pretend that they didn't hear me the first time. So I said, I'm really glad for you. And and their pause, it, it happens very often, by the way. And their pause, it is as to say, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to feel troubled because of my sin. So can you please somehow help me to get rid of these uncomfortable feelings? Brothers, didn't Jesus say, Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted? Do you want to be comforted by God? You've got to cultivate this virtue of mourning over your sin. Psalm 34 verse 18, it says that Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Don't run away from being broken and weeping over your sin. Why? Do you want to experience the nearness of the Lord? Cultivate this attitude of being broken over your sin, crushed in the spirit. How beautiful is it to have such attitude? It's not so much spoken of in, in the worldly churches that we, we have around us these days, is it? But nonetheless, weeping for sin is a great virtue to cultivate, brothers. Now, footnote, please. We don't mean to wallow over your sin or to beat yourself up. Because you're, you're sinned. Again, that is self-atoning. That's not what we mean. But what we mean is brokenness is to come to the end of yourself. Feeling the weight of your sin to the point of crushing. Why? Because we know the goodness of our Savior whom we sinned against. It's one of the greatest virtues that we ought to cultivate. Why? Why, it is a, why is it a great virtue to cultivate? 
Now let me finish my message giving you three reasons why it is so good to cultivate this virtue of brokenness. Number one, great men of God had this virtue. Jeremiah, what was Jeremiah called? Weeping prophet, weeping prophet. And he wasn't weeping because his toes were hurting him. It was because of sin in him and in the people around him. Paul, in his highest level of maturity, what did he say? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Sometimes we have this wrong idea that the the more we grow in maturity and the more joy we experience in the Lord, the less we'll have this uncomfort, brokenness over our sin that is entirely false. Entirely false. The fact of the matter is, the more we grow in our knowledge of Christ, the more we become sensitive to our sin. And the more we grow to become sensitive to our sin, the more we ought to be broken over them. And when you cultivate this virtue, you're identifying yourself with godly men of the past. Second reason why it's good to cultivate this virtue of brokenness and weeping over your sin is that it leads us to hate sin. It leads us to hate sin. You remember in Psalm 51 when David sinned against God and he was broken over his sin. He felt that something Foreign, ugly, sinister was attached to himself. He recognized that sin scarred him. And so he says in verse 7, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Meaning God cut out this love of sin from me. Scrub me, bathe me, God. Take it away from me. And and in our story here, we find Peter weeping and in brokenness, Peter recognized the sin, that sin causes pain. Sin is brutal. He agrees with the scripture when the scripture says, the way of the transgressor is hard. And so he's growing in his hatred towards sin. Last, but certainly not the least, and if the most important of them all, the reason why it's good, brothers and sisters, to weep as Peter wept, to weep over our sins privately behind closed doors is that weeping over our sins lead us to love the Savior more. You find any better thing to do or to have in our hearts but to love the Savior more? 
we've got to be weeping disciples over our sins. How come? What's the connection? Well, a contrite man, broken man, is a man who is convinced he is morally bankrupt. He's convinced that sin stains you. It smudges you. If you ask Peter, Peter, at that point of denial, and he looked upon Christ, and now he's weeping, and on his knees, Peter, is there anything that you can do? Peter would say, I'm incapable of anything good apart from God. I'm convinced. Left to my own, the only thing that I'm capable to do is to mess up again and again and again. To be broken over one sin. There is no way to wiggle yourself out of it. Brokenness makes you recognize the depth of your sin. It corners you. It bears heavy upon you like a a ton of bricks. And the only way out is to cast yourself upon the Savior's arm. Trusting that His blood alone is sufficient to forgive you and to cleanse you. And when you know that Christ has forgiven such an unworthy person as yourself, It is inevitable that you will love him more. No wonder when Jesus came back after he rose from the dead, when he came back to to Peter to restore him, he asked him, Peter, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord. Of course he did. He was weeping over his sins and it led him to love his Savior more. And would to God that he would lead this small group of people to cultivate the same brokenness, this same virtue as Peter did. So, let's wrap it up. What should we do? How do we appropriately respond when we sin? Number one, the look of Jesus. It always begins with Christ, does it not? Number two, the remembering. Remembering how he's good to you. Remembering his words, remembering his warnings. Remember him. And number three, the weeping. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, He who is forgiven much, loves much. Meaning, how can we love much if we don't believe that we are forgiven much? Brothers, and how can we believe that we are forgiven much if we don't admit that we sin much? And how can we claim that we sin much if we don't weep and mourn and are broken before a holy God because of our sins? This is the path of healing. And while worldly Christians hate this feeling, it's uncomfortable. 
and their eyes are closed to their own fallenness. And they try to persuade us, hey, you don't have to be miserable, broken over your sin. Just have a smile in your face and just be glad and be happy. Even when you sin. You're confused between the joy, the deep-seated joy, and just that tingling external emotion. Now, I've got to be broken over my sin. Blessed are those who mourn. And I want to mourn. I want to learn and study how I can grow in mourning over my sin. Brothers, I can tell you, from reading biographies, from studying the scripture, and even my personal walk with God, the more you grow in the knowledge of the Savior, the more you are broken over your sin. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Amen? I know that there are unbelievers among us, and they are sitting here. I have a word from my master to you today. That sweet, gracious, loving, compassionate Savior, don't take him or misunderstand him thinking that he is a sissy Savior. One day he will bolt out of the sky with a sword in his hand. And it's going to be dipped in your own blood if you do not put your trust in him. It is the same Savior who is gracious enough to offer forgiveness to those that will come to him. It is the same Savior. He will be sitting on that throne of judgment. And he will sift you out. You can run, but you will not be able to hide from his presence. And he will lay judgment upon you. And he will cast you an eternal hell fire to pay the price for your sins. But today, as we heard the message. He is such a gracious Savior. He is such a loving Savior that He was willing voluntarily to come from heaven, clothe Himself with humanity, live the sinless life, and on the cross was hung on that tree voluntarily. So that he would bear the sins of all of those people that would come to him. And on that cross, as he was their perfect representative, the father looked upon him and he saw not his sin, but the sins of those who put their trust in him. And God unleashed his wrath. God's justice was satisfied in Christ. Let me tell you, unbelievers, God's justice will have to be satisfied one way or another. Either you put your trust in Christ now, 
in which case Jesus already satisfied God's wrath on your behalf, or a day will come where God's wrath will be satisfied as he unleashes, unleashes all of hell upon you. I plead with you this morning that you will come to Jesus Christ. He offers grace. He offers forgiveness freely to you if you just but come to him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for Jesus. What a wonderful Savior we have. We sin greatly, Lord, against you. And the fact that we, those among us who belong to you, are your children, have experienced the new nature, the Holy Spirit, and the love of God, your love, Lord God. causes us to feel even more pain because of our sin against you, Lord. Far more than any pain any unbeliever ought to experience. When we sin without knowing you, Lord, we ought to be judged. And we ought to weep. We ought to. How much all the more, Lord, when we sin knowing how much of a loving Savior your Son is to us. Father, would you please help us to look upon Christ, to see Him, that He still remains to be a gracious Savior. Even after 20 years, 30, 100 years of being born again, He will always remain to be a gracious Savior. Father, help us to remember his goodness to each and every single one of us. And Lord, let this be the means by which we come to you, broken, coming to the end of ourselves, resting completely upon you, Lord God, so that we could love you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.